Welcome back to another episode of MJ's Progress Not Perfection. Today's guest is author Kenneth Anderson. Kenneth has written two books, one on harm reduction and one called um, Strychnine and Gold. And right now he's working on another book. He's got many master's degrees. He is definitely a student of being a student. Like he just wants to learn and learn and learn. Um, he runs an amazing group on Facebook called Hams Harm Reduction for Alcohol. It's got over nine thousand you know people that are in there and very active in there. It's a great group for somebody who doesn't want to go with abstinence but wants to learn how to moderate or wants to learn how to turn it down or control or again different kind of recoveries. I I love talking about different kind of recoveries. You know, not everyone's going to have the same exact recovery. Not everyone had the same exact addiction. So I think it's important to highlight. When people do have different methods that work for them and work for others. So we talk a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, but it's a really fun interview, um, a lot of information, especially if you're out there and you're trying to figure out a different way to do it or a new way to do it or just hear what other people are doing. I don't know. Either way, I definitely hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on, like, short notice. Now, do you want to start off by saying you wrote a book? Yes. A while, a while ago. You wrote a couple editions of that same book now, right? Um, okay. Uh, the book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. Um, the, first, the difference between the first edition and the second edition is basically the first edition had a lot of typos and things in it that needed to be cleaned up. Okay. And it it had an ugly cover. So uh, content-wise, it's very much the same book. Uh, one appendix was kind of changed. But uh, content-wise, it's pretty much the same book, except we basically discontinued the first uh, first edition because of the reasons I just told you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but the, the, con- the content itself is still the most relevant thing in there, though, at least. Exactly. Yeah. Now, how long ago did you write that first edition? Uh, they both came out in 2010. Okay, so it's been uh, over 10 years now. Now, did you base it on you know your own experiences, like with quitting drinking, or not quitting drinking, but changing your relationship with alcohol? Um, not really. It's not really a book about me or my experiences. Um. So, uh, first of all, it's a science-based book, so there's a lot of research in it, and there's a lot of references to uh, peer-reviewed scientific articles. Um, I had been participating in a group called Moderation Management for a while. In fact, I was their online director for several years, and uh, while I was there, um, I... I heard about harm reduction. I got interested in the concept because it fit me personally much better than uh, the standard moderation model did. I started volunteering in needle exchange in Minneapolis at uh, Access Works. Uh, it's no longer in existence, but uh, yeah. And I learned a huge amount uh, from uh, volunteering in needle exchange. It really changed my it changed my life totally. It changed my view of everything. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever done. So 
um, I started developing a harm reduction program while I was in moderation management. And a lot of people uh, got very interested. They were following this. Um, so there was a change of administration in moderation management, and the new person didn't like harm reduction very much. <laughs> big so, surprise. Big surprise on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they wanted uh, a moderation program. They wanted no changes in, the, in their program. So a bunch of us left, and we decided to start HAMS. And what does HAMS uh, stand for, for people that don't know? Yeah, it's an acronym. Uh, the H is for harm reduction. The A is for abstinence. The M is for moderation. And the S is support. So it's, okay. a, support, it's a support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. So it's very broad. We, it's, it's, it accepts basically any goal that you have, any improvement you want to make. It doesn't matter how much you drink or how little you drink. If you drink one glass of wine a week and you want to quit, yeah, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, I, was, I joined your group a few months ago when my wife and I, we opened this nonprofit mental health meeting center, and we have a, one of our – we have daily you know, mental health check-ins twice a day, 9 a.m. and 8 p.m., but we wanted to have like specialized meetings every day at 6:30, like for different things. And every Wednesday now is harm reduction night. So people that want to come in to learn about harm reduction, learn how to like, you know, turn down, you know what I mean? I don't care if you're coming in here drinking eight drinks a week, a week, maybe next week do six, you know, and stuff hmm. like that. And trying to teach people that, you know, harm reduction is a thing. And we partner with the United way a lot with what they're doing around here with harm reduction too because they're all about like using in safe places and needle exchanges and that kind of thing that you talked about, because we're not too far from, you know, we're, I mean, we're about two hours from, you know, one of the biggest open air, you know, needle exchange, open market fentanyl places in the world with Kensington being, you know, about two hours away from us. Mm. Um, are you in Philly? Yes, I am. Okay. So you're not far from Kensington either. Do you ever go over there? Um, not really. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I mean, I mean, with your background, like, that's why I wasn't sure with what you did in Minneapolis with the needle exchange, because like Kensington is not looking good, as we both know. Yeah, I know. Well, there's a lot of harm reduction uh, in Philadelphia. There's some uh, great organizations working here. Uh, Prevention Point is here. Um I know Brooke Feldman is based here, and she's very interested in harm reduction. She's a big promoter of harm reduction. Um, I I haven't been doing a lot with uh, bricks and mortar lately. Okay. Yeah. I've been an online person for the past uh, five years or more. Well, actually, more like the past ten years. So, <laughs> ever since you wrote your book, basically, you've been focusing on just you know, making sure it's out there and everything. And making sure the group is – I know you're the main moderator, and I see you almost in every comment section. So I know you are active when it comes to what's going on in your group, which is awesome to see because you don't always see, you know, somebody who starts a group actually stick around for the entirety. You know, or the moderators, they get bored or they don't actually participate, and then it gets out of hand. So I've always appreciated that with how you kind of keep it under wraps with it. Like there has been some comment sections where – I'm I'm pretty sure one recently actually you had to like just shut down the entire like comment section and then you had to like 
take down the post, you know. And um, so, yeah, it was actually the other moderator that took down the post. I was going to leave it up, but uh, that's yeah, she okay. Pro she probably <laughs> didn't like getting yelled at because <laughs> I, I saw that he, he was berating a moderator in the comments. I'm like, oh, man. Um, but anyway, are you are you coming from a place of like, you know, where you had alcohol use disorder? Oh, yeah. You want to tell me a little about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely met the uh, DSM-4 criteria for alcohol dependence. Uh, you know, I was drinking about four-fifths of whiskey uh, each week. Um, and that's a lot. That sure is. <laughs> it sure. What kind of whiskey were you? Uh, those days I was drinking Jim Beam. It okay. was It was pretty cheap uh, where I was living. I don't know why I moved to New York and looked, and it's like expensive, and I don't know why. That's that's a really mediocre whiskey. I was drinking it because it was cheap. Yeah, and when was this back? Like, what years were this when you were starting to get into drinking? Oh, you know, it's you know so it's, how old, it's, how old were you? It's a long story. We have time. So, I have time. <laughs> Uh, when I was in my twenties, uh, well, when I was in my early twenties, you know, I was uh, drinking reasonably. You know, I was in college uh, doing, uh, you know, weekend, um, you know, getting loaded on the weekend or like once a week. So, you know, it wasn't a big deal uh, during the week. Have a beer or two in the day, you know. Yeah, you're in college. You're supposed to. So there's no big deal, no problem. Um, then I had some depression in my mid twenties and, uh, ran into some negative life experiences and, you know, I started drinking a lot to blot out the world and, you know, I went back and forth a lot. I would, uh, you know, take, uh, six or nine months off and not drink or, and then I'd be in control and then I drink every other day for a while. Um, but it's about the mid nineties where, you know, I got, uh, out of control. I remember, um, I was in graduate school for my linguistics degree at the university of Minnesota. I'd finished my first year and summer vacation came on, come on. I was still quite depressed. Uh, actually, I got very depressed and there was nothing, you know, I wasn't occupied anymore. I started drinking day and night. And after a week of that, I checked into treatment. And uh, fortunately, I said up front, you know, to <clears throat> to the funders, uh, I don't want anything to do with the 12 steps because I know a little bit about them and I know I can't stand them. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It was a kind of uh, mixed cognitive behavioral 12 step, even though they're completely contradictory to each other. Um but it wasn't bad. It gave me 28 days to dry out, and that was good. I did pick up some cognitive behavioral ideas there. That was good. Um, so, you know, then I went back into control. I started drinking once a week um, for uh, several years, actually until I finished my master's degree in linguistics. So that works pretty good. Um then I was working at the Minneapolis Public Library for a while. I was shelving books. So I was pretty bored. So, you know, I started drinking, you know, 
that's when I was drinking about four fifths in a week, you know. I was uh, listening to a lot of uh, old 1920s, 1930s blues and hillbilly guys, and it's all about being drunk. That's the whole what the music is mm. about. Um, I don't know if you censor this or not, but it's about uh, drinking. You can curse. And... It doesn't matter. Yeah, you're good. I mean, the music is about drinking and fucking. That's what it's about. That sounds uh, about right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I was kind of bored and uh, just enjoying the music a lot and started, you know, got up to about four-fifths in a week and got in trouble, uh, got fired from my job for coming in hungover too much. I mean, I didn't realize that I was still legally intoxicated after sleeping at all. Yeah, you thought once you wake up, you're not drunk anymore. Well, you know, I wasn't functionally drunk anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, blood alcohol level was over uh, the .08 limit, so, uh, you know. That'll happen. Did you ever get any DUIs during that time, too? Oh, um, here's a little secret. I've never driven in my life. Uh, uh -huh. Well, I did drive a couple times on the farm growing up, but uh, never had a driver's license. I've never driven on a city street. So it's not something you wanted to do, or you were like an accident as a kid. I Usually, just um, no, I wasn't in an accident. I was, uh, um, well, at that at that time, I had other things holding my interest. I was uh, reading. Uh, Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, and I was teaching myself calculus when I was 15. Okay. Uh, and You're I more of an academic than care about the social part of, like, I need to drive to go see my friends. You you were more like, I want to study and learn. Yeah, so I dropped out of school to have time to study, and I never got the driver's ed. I mean, uh, you know, it sounds weird, but, you know, when you, where I was going to school way out in rural Wisconsin, it was like there was nothing for me to learn there. Is that yeah. where you grew up? Yeah. You're the I grew up on the farm. You're the third person from Wisconsin that's going to be in my podcast. Actually, I just hung up with somebody before you that was a Madison um, cop, was a capital city cop from Madison and was a drug addict. And, you know, he, um, he was a cop that was a drug addict and got caught up in it, you know. But still, nonetheless, he's been sober eight years now. But, like, he was in the news for stealing a painting from the governor's mansion, like, a decade ago. And, like, that made... He's like, it sucks. Every time you Google my name, it says that I stole a painting. And mm. how I got charged with stealing this painting from the governor's mansion and all that. And he was like, so I just leaned into it. So now my LinkedIn says International Art Thief. <laughs> 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 he's like, I might as well just own it. They're going to find it anyway on my, you know, when they Google my name. So, but it just, you know, it's funny that, you know, I'm in Pennsylvania and I'm from New Jersey and I got sober in California, but yet three people now that I've talked to, you know, including you were born in Wisconsin and like, you know, grew up in Wisconsin. Um, what Madison, you know, Madison yeah. is so different though from where I city? grew up. Uh, Madison is, uh, yeah, it's, well, it's definitely a city. Um, I mean, rural Wisconsin and urban Wisconsin are completely different. Okay. I, I, never... yeah. I mean, people don't even sound alike. You know, you listen, I have still, I'm still using it right now, the uh, rural 
Wisconsin accent. I'm not putting anything on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what happens to me is uh, everybody from the north says, you sound like you're from the south. And everybody from the south says, no, you sound like you're from the north. Mm-hmm. And that, because my first master's degree is in linguistics, I can tell you all about um, Wisconsin was settled by people from Kentucky originally, and then all the Swedes and Norwegians came over, and all those people from Kentucky taught them all. They learned them all how to talk good. <laughs> they learned them all how to talk good. <laughs> so we've got this uh, Kentucky substrate with the Scandinavian superstrate. So it's kind of an interesting mixture. Yeah, and plus, like, you know, you're right below Canada, so you got lo- sometimes I hear a little bit of that twang, you know, or like, you know, and sometimes, well, at least in the person I just talked to, I kept hearing mm-hmm, some, like, mm-hmm. little, like, things that reminded me of the Dakotas and Canada. And I don't know if that has anything to do with where he's from or maybe where his parents might have been from because, you know, I, I have lived all over the country. You know, I, I, when I was in addiction, I moved 30 times in 15 years. And Massachusetts, North Carolina, South Jersey is where I'm from, you know, and now Pennsylvania, Lancaster County. Now I'm up in Bloomsburg in the middle of nowhere. So like and plus I got sober in California. So I've heard all and accents have always fascinated me. Like I've always loved like, where's your accent? Like I've always I'm always that guy like, where where are you talking from? You know, where did you get that from? Why do you say that? Like and I purposely I can fix my accent. I can say water, but I still choose to say water. You know, <laughs> it's just <laughs> something that, like, I consciously, I, I don't care. You know, and it kind of, like, it tells you where I'm from without me having to tell you. You know, you just say, water? Like, yeah. Like, why'd you say that? Like, I don't know, I'm from Philly. It's water. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things where I know that I'm, I, when I moved to Massachusetts, they were like, can you say home phone? I'm like, what? They're like, home phone. I'm like, yeah. They're like, yeah, you say it weird. I'm like, yeah, you guys don't even say your R's. Calm down. Like, you can't jump on me for how I talk when you guys don't talk good either. <laughs> like, we don't <laughs> pronounce our L's, apparently, because I said, yeah, I went over the railroad tracks. And they are like, the what tracks? I'm like, railroad. They're like, the railroad? I'm like, yeah. They're like, you didn't say your L. I didn't know what you were talking about. I'm like, what? And apparently, <laughs> I don't. My last name is Dilks, but everyone thinks I say Dokes. Because I always have to say D as in David, I, L as in Larry. Because or else they don't hear the L in my name. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. just been an ongoing thing for my entire life. Of now I just have to phonetically say my name sometimes just to get make sure I don't have to repeat it anyway. I just know it's coming <laughs> by now. Um, all right. So now now you have your master's degree and it's like the mid two thousands. Okay. Uh before we go there, I have to finish okay. uh the dialect stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because uh urban Wisconsin dialect and uh the rural dialect are completely different they don't resemble each other at all all the people from cities in wisconsin they all sound you know like the people from the cities in uh minnesota or michigan or that area you know they all kind of speak this kind of standardized boring uh newscaster type english Mm -hmm. Uh, so, I mean, if you're if you're a Wisconsin person, you can tell immediately where somebody grew up. But you hardly ever hear the rural Wisconsin dialect because people don't leave. <laughs> they grow up there and they stay there forever. Why did so, you leave? Oh, I couldn't stand it. Uh, 
I wanted to be someplace that had books and libraries and museums and things. Um, yeah, I wanted to go you're to in school. The right, yeah, you're in the right place now. Yeah. At least Philly, you know, that's, I, I loved, I used to grow up going to the art museum every Sunday when my aunt was studying her master's in art history at St. Joe's. And she would take me every Sunday to like, you know, look at all the paintings because it was like part of her thing that she had to go there for some reason. I don't know. But yeah, she would take me, and I used to love going to that art museum every single week with her. I was like probably five or six years old, but I still have like memories of going there all the time, like back in the 90s. Um, all right, so linguistics. We were talking about Wisconsin. Sorry, I get off on rants and tangents. And So yeah, I'm just going to close it, that topic now, because I probably sound a lot different than your guy from Madison sounded. Yeah, you do. Yep. Yeah, that's the split, you know. I Madison, never would have guessed Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, Madison is cool. Madison is a very left wing. Uh, of course, that's uh, the where the University of Wisconsin was founded. That's still the main branch, so it's very intellectual. You know, I only was there a couple days, but uh, of course, growing up in the state, uh, you know, I know what it's like. Yeah. Then you know, you've got Milwaukee, which is also very urban, and then you've got every got all the rest of the place with all the cows and me. <laughs> hey, cheese has to come from somewhere, man. <laughs> yeah. So we can get back to you. Okay. Um, yeah, I was uh, You're drinking four fifths a week. Yeah, in the nineties. You know, I was probably in my four. Yeah, I was in my forties then. I got in trouble. Um, you know, with my job and shit. So definitely met uh, DSM-4 criteria. Now, what is DSM-4 for anyone who... Oh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 4th edition. It's the uh, psychiatric Bible. It's the Diagnostic Bible, um, which, you know, there's a lot to debate about what is in the DSM. The current one is the 5. Okay. The 5th edition. Um, I'm going back to the fourth edition because I'm talking about the nineties and that's when I yeah. self-diagnosed. <laughs> I haven't taken the test out of the fifth yet. Um, <laughs> but that's when you diagnose as having an alcohol use disorder. Yeah. It would, yeah. Under DSM four, uh, they generally called it alcohol dependence. Uh, under the five, uh, they got rid of the terms dependence and abuse, and they now it's alcohol use disorder, mild, moderate, and severe. So it's a little different. Um, well, it's interesting. I got my second master's degree in psychology and addiction counseling at the New School University in New York City, New School for Social Research. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... Basically, they make you memorize the DSM. <laughs> and uh, at least all the adult parts. They don't make you do the children's parts. But you have to m basically memorize the adult parts to uh, pass the exams. And uh, so when I started school, the DSM-4 was current. And then I left school for a few years. Um, took some time off after I wrote my book. Yeah, because I was about ready to collapse in after going to school and writing the book simultaneously. That's a lot of writing. I mean, going for a master's degree, isn't that like all writing by that point? Like when you're going for a master's, isn't that like a shitload of writing you have to do? 
Yeah, and the new school makes you read three times as much as any other school does. So yeah. it's a really psycho place to get your degree. I mean, it, I learned an awful lot, but boy, it was <coughs> it was a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. And I was writing my book at the same time. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. every time I start school, you know, it makes me interested in all kinds of questions that aren't don't have anything to do with my classwork. <laughs> now, now, did you want to write the book because, you know, you went to go look for a book like it and it didn't exist already? Um, okay, I'll come right back to that in a second. Okay. So uh, I memorized the DSM-4, uh, took a couple years off, then uh, re-enrolled to finish up my master's at the new school, and by then the DSM-5 had been published, and they said, oh, okay, now you have to memorize the DSM-5 because we changed all our tests. <laughs> so I memorized both of them. <laughs> Where do you have the room up there, man? <laughs> I've run out of room. I'm pushing shit out all the time to make room for random information to make that's not relevant to anything. I don't know where you're putting all that information to master's degree. I'm struggling here with a high school diploma and a year and a half of college. <laughs> well, it's fun. I enjoy it. So Yeah, we're all wired different, you know. So, you know, I'm just do it because I like it. Um, so, okay. Uh, why did I write the book? Um as I said, I created uh, this harm reduction program while I was in moderation management, and uh, then we left because we didn't feel welcome anymore, and we started our own group, the HAMS, and uh, we left in 2006, um, and we really started our own thing in January of 2007. That's when I put up the uh, website, and... Uh, that's you know that's when we started our own group and uh, we were incorporated in uh, I think it was August of 2007 got the 501c3 status in September I got the quickest ruling I've ever seen I, must... that was a month I'm still waiting for our 501c3 from May it was <laughs> it, it was like a month it was like they took one look at our bylaws and said Man, these guys will never make any money at all, so we don't have to worry about them cheating us. <laughs> I hope they say the same shit when they finally get me an approval. I've literally been waiting. Like, we just got denied for another grant because we don't have that status yet. And so it basically just fucked me out of, like, $5,500 between the two grants, which would have been huge for us because, honestly, we've been running this on unemployment money and hoping for the grants. And unemployment's a federal one, and that runs out next week. So, you know, and since we work in a stigma, you know, a lot of companies in the area, they don't want to donate money because they don't want to be sponsoring a company that has to do with mental health or addiction. So, you know, we're not in a liberal area where we are. We are in an area where, you know, my wife and I were part of the 30% that did not vote red, you know, last November. So when we have a rainbow flag on our door and we're promoting wellness and mental health and, you know, the LGBTQ, we get a lot of, you know, slack from the town people. But I don't give a shit. I'm not going anywhere. We're, <laughs> there's a college in this town. 
and there's plenty of kids that could use help mental health wise. So we don't even call them alcoholic meetings. We don't call them AA. The, you know, we call it mental health check-ins. The only time I call it AA is when I'm fucking with somebody next door at the bar. Because we are next to a bar. And they will try to smoke cigarettes outside of our place. And so I turn into Jehovah's Witness. I'm like, hey, you here for the meeting? We start in about an hour. But, yeah, if you're here for the meeting, I, we can start talking now, man. You know, while I'm smoking. They're like, what meeting? I'm like, you're at AA, aren't you? You're coming to the AA, <laughs> AA meeting in here? We start about a half an hour. We can start talking now, buddy. Who's your higher power? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Now they smoke on the other side of the bar because I, I, I did make one friend and he like kind of went with it and now we're buddies and he always comes down just to chit chat with me. But like if they would talk to me, they'd find out that my higher power is Bill Murray like and that I, I'm a fun guy and we have fun in these meetings. But no, I, um, I you know, I turn in Jehovah's Witness like, oh, you're here for AA? But we definitely don't have any AA meetings here because AA asked me to stop coming. They didn't like the fact that I have a medical marijuana card and that I went to a so I went to an L.A. to a rehab called High, Soci High Sobriety. And they. Oh, I know them. That's uh, Joe Shrank. Used to be. Yeah, he started it. And then he was gone within a year to do something different. He was not running it by the time I got there. I was okay. like, there, I was like their sixth or seventh patient. Um, and that was three over three and a half years ago now. So yeah. we founded our group uh, basically in 2007. Officially, we came into official existence in 2007, kind of got our start in 2006. And, you know, I said, you know, we need a handbook for the group. You know, Moderation Management has their book. AA has their book. You know, everybody, every group has their book, so I better write a book for us. So, uh, so part of the book, a lot of the book comes out of my experiences running harm reduction groups, you know, uh, in, mo in moderation management because we had our own harm reduction group going inside them. And then afterwards, running the HAMS group and interacting with all these people and, uh, you know, learning a lot and then all my experiences from the needle exchange programs which you know that forms the core of the hams philosophy it comes straight out of the uh original harm reduction movement you know from the needle exchanges and from uh the nal naloxone distribution programs and most of the exchanges have had harm reduction support groups for a long time so you know, ideas like uh, any positive change is a good thing. You know, it's not, you know, you're either totally abstinent, you're either totally black or totally white. You're totally abstinent or you're completely relapsed. You know, there's no in-between. And we're like, any positive change is a good thing. Because, uh, you know, any positive change, that slogan comes out of Chicago Recovery Alliance, uh, Dan Big who uh, introduced naloxone to the world, really. And what is <laughs> what is naloxone, for those who don't know? Because I know what it is. Um, it reverses overdoses. It's also called Narcan. Yeah, that's, that's the uh, brand name. Uh, yeah, a lot of people might have heard the name Narcan. We have a whole drawer uh, of it, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> you never People, because we, we promote harm reduction. So people do come in here high, you mm -hmm. know. And, like, the other day, there was a guy literally high on heroin and speed here. 
And, um, you know, at the same time, he was speedballing. And he was passing out, and then he was like a puppet again, like a marionette. And, you know, I, I gave him Narcan to take home with him because he had overdosed 10 days before this. So, you know, we, we do keep Narcan here for that reason because you never know when you're – so this guy, this guy from Chicago created Narcan. Um, yeah, he didn't invent it. Uh, oh, okay. It, it was invented back in the 1960s. But Dan Big at Chicago Recovery Alliance said – Hey, here's this drug that saves people's lives, and the only people that can get it are EMTs. You know, I need to put this in the hands of people who use drugs because they're the first people that see their friends overdose. They're the first ones that can use it. So Dan Big is responsible for uh, distributing it, distributing it to the public. Um, yeah, he got a doctor, uh, Sars Maxwell to write a standing prescription so that uh, anybody could uh, get, it, get it in the pharmacy. Um, if you read Maya Zalovitz's new book, Undoing Drugs, uh, The History of Harm Reduction, it's uh, got all those stories in it, including how Dan Big set up the original naloxone distribution to people. And, you know, if, I mean, in the last couple of years, uh, it's actually most states, I think every state but one, I remember uh, it's available now to anyone basically that wants it. You can yeah, get a hold of it now. Yeah. Um, you can just go to your local United Way. And that's, I mean, the United Way is the one that supplied us with it here because um, they're all about harm reduction there and safe using and use with a friend and promoting that kind of stuff. And because um, one of the people that are in charge of the um, United in Recovery there, she's a former addict. So, you know, she's in recovery. So she's all about making sure that Narcan's available everywhere. So, mm. yeah. It and it definitely... should be. Yep. And there are still lots of treatment centers and lots of uh, so-called sober houses that don't have it. They don't keep it on hand. No, we don't want to enable people. You're not enabling people by saving their lives. If they're dead, they're dead. They are not recovering, um, yeah. you know, and it's ridiculous. You read about so-and-so overdosed in such-and-such uh, -such treatment center and died before the EMTs could come with naloxone. You're treating people who use heroin and you don't have naloxone on hand. It's ridiculous. It is an outrage yeah. that any treatment center should exist. I mean, you should shut down every treatment center that doesn't have it on hand. Yeah, I mean, it's just purely it's um well, i can't think of the word uh irresponsible absolutely it's irresponsible that's a better word to say it's irresponsible um so yeah the ideas for the book came <clears throat> they came from the needle exchanges from the harm reduction programs that existed from my interaction with all the people in the online groups um that were practicing harm reduction and uh, finally, my other really important source was Pat Denning's book. Uh, well, she wrote two books, actually four now. Um, she wrote uh, Practicing Harm Reduction. No, wait a minute. Um, no, I think it's Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. And it's the first and second edition. And her second edition is completely rewritten, so it's a brand new book. And she also oh, wrote okay. Over the Influence, first and second edition. Um, and this was when she wrote her harm reduction therapy book, 
uh, she found out all her clients were reading it. <laughs> Even though it was written for professionals, it's kind of, uh, you know, the language is a bit dense, you know? Yeah. And so when she found out all her clients were reading it, she said, well, I have to write one that's a little more accessible, a little more in layman's terms. Yeah, less wordy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, fewer of the $5 words in it yeah. in a little more common language. Uh, so she wrote Over the Influence, uh, which, I mean, covers the same concepts. Um, and, you know, I read those books, and those were huge influences. So, you know, my book is, has a huge debt to Pat's books. Um, when I wrote my book, the first editions were the only ones out yet. The, the second editions came out more recently. <laughs> um so I took some of the basic ideas in her book, and they're not new ideas uh, necessarily. You know, some of them are like, do a cost-benefit analysis. Write down the pros and cons of your current behaviors. Write down the pros and cons of the change you want to make, um, which is a tool that's been around at least since the 1960s. It's like psychologists have been using. It's very effective, you know, and what they do in rehab is totally screwed up because they'll say, um, tell us everything wonderful about sobriety and tell us everything horrible about drinking. It doesn't and work that way. It doesn't work that way because yeah. all the good things about drinking remain in your subconscious because you don't express them. And then they pop out when you least expect them. And you, you don't to, know, you don't even know what sobriety is yet. 30 days, 28 days in, like in treatment, I didn't know what sobriety even was. You know what I mean? Like, it took me a long time to learn what even how to live sober. I can't answer a question like that of how to sobriety. Like, I'm just glad I'm not spending money today. You know, <laughs> that was like the. But yeah, like some of the questions I ask in rehab were just like, what? Did you just ask me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I went to uh, a second rehab at one point. The first one, as I said, was okay. They were kind of cool. Uh, the second one was 12-step based, and uh, people were making the sign of the cross against me when they saw me. The uh, <laughs> the other patients were. <laughs> and, and hey, I I do like the 12 steps, I, but I don't like all of them. Okay? Like, mm -hmm. I think one is important. I think four and five are very important. I think six is kind of horseshit. And I think eight and nine are extremely important. Um, but I don't really subscribe to all 12 of them, personally. You know, now that I'm not in the program, I don't mind saying that out loud, you know, and being so open about it. But, you know, I think anything that makes your life unmanageable, you know, you, you could work on. So that's why I like the first one. I don't care about the word alcohol in it because, like, I've even had a sponsee that I helped him get over an ex by just taking out alcohol and putting her name in there. Because her, she mm. made his life unmanageable, you know. But I don't. I'm not a God guy, you know. Spoiler alert: Bill Murray is higher power. Does not mean I, I say God a lot, you know, in a positive <laughs> way. You know, I grew up Catholic. I, I want to be far away as possible from that shit. You know, in the early 2000s when everything started coming out, I started pulling away, and I was like, all right, well, I guess I don't have a religion anymore, you know. And then there. <laughs> I don't like step three when the sponsor makes you say, let go, let God. I was refusing that shit. 
Um, but I think four is important. I think if you have a resentment, you should talk about it. That's when, and that's what five is. Five is talking about the resentment with somebody else. So like those kind of things, I think dropping your character defects was horseshit personally. I mean, cause I was refusing to drop manipulation, um, mm-hmm. because I felt I could use manipulation in a positive way. And even my therapist said, just use your powers for good. And if you use, if you're not self-serving with manipulation, then I'll, I'll co-sign your bullshit. Basically, I'll let I, I will say, go ahead, manipulate as long as you're not being self-serving with your manipulation. And I said, OK, I can do that. So like me, <laughs> you know, this you know, meeting center is a grandiose way to manipulate, to be not be self-serving, to help mm-hmm. others, you mm-hmm. know, get out mm-hmm. of their shit. But, yeah, I don't I don't like all the 12 steps. So now you're like at, you know, you're out of rehab when they're, they don't they know that you don't want to do any of them. Right. You're open well, about that. You know, it was like uh, I remember day one. Uh, I remember day one when I first got there. I went to my very first group, and uh, they were discussing step eleven, which is be in conscious contact with uh, God and seek only to do His will. And uh, so this must have been about two thousand two or three. And I, you know, we were going around the circle saying, what does this mean to you? And they got to me and I said, well, you know, there were some guys that thought they were in conscious contact with God and they thought they were doing his will. And they flew some airplanes into the Twin Towers. Um, So I don't really think this is a good idea. (laughs) I look like you can. (laughs) That's some shit I would have (laughs) said. <laughs> just taking it and take, putting it to the extreme, you know, the polar extreme to make them realize, like, that's how significant it really can be when you're doing God's will. What you think is God's will, I should say. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think... How did how did the therapist that was running that group respond to that answer? Uh, I don't think they had a word to say. <laughs> I don't remember all I just right. remember after John, that. John, you're next. What was? What are you? What's your conscious <laughs> name? Just moved right on. <laughs> just shuffled along. Yeah, I was near the end of the line anyway. I was one of the last people to talk, but uh, yeah, they didn't really have anything to say. Were but you there to dry that, out? Were you there to dry out, or did somebody um, ask you to go? So. No, I I really uh, I really knew I needed a break. Okay. Um, so I've been in rehab twice, and both times I was there volitionally, uh, volitionally, voluntarily. I've never yeah, been yeah. sent to rehab. I mean, I, I don't drive. When I drink, I don't leave the house. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's really hard to get arrested if you don't leave the house when you're drunk. I would hope not. I saw your drink count the other day, my lucky number 17. I was like, yep, that's a good number. That's a good number to hit. <laughs> well, that's the number of drinks in a fifth of whiskey. So, oh, is, oh, okay. Is that what it is? So on my drinking day, I buy a fifth. I don't keep booze in the house. I don't want it around when I'm working. You know, it's, so on my drinking day, I buy a fifth of whiskey. I... I stay home, I watch movies, I drink my booze. When the bottle is empty, I go to sleep. Um, it's pretty innocuous. You still a Jim Beam guy? Uh, no, I don't drink. Graduated. Graduated. 
Well, especially when I moved to New York City from Minneapolis, and I saw in New York City, Beam is high-priced. And it's like, why are you putting this high price tag on this mediocre uh, whiskey? You know, you're coming from Wisconsin. One of the, according to one guy I talked to, has one of the cheapest states for alcohol in the country. Oh yeah. Because like you know, Wisconsin's wouldn't have any. Like Pennsylvania, there's like a what, like a fucking nineteen percent extra tax mm-hmm. on all the alcohol because of a flood that happened back in the 1930s. I think that's mm-hmm. what I there was a flood in John in in Johnsontown or Jonestown, PA, like kind of by Lebanon area. And mm-hmm. that flood was so significant they needed extra money to cover the costs back in the nineteen thirties. So they used the alcohol tax when alcohol came back as an extra tax to give them the money they were gonna need to fix their town. And then after they realized how much extra money they were making they never took it away. So we've been paying like 20% more in PA mm-hmm. for almost a hundred years because of some flood in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. But in New York city, you know, when I went to the liquor store, it's not just that it was more expensive because of the taxes. When I looked at the comparative prices, um, it was priced with, you know, the mid range, whiskeys it wasn't priced with the cheap stuff oh i see so comparatively yeah i mean in new york city i can buy uh like a fifth of ezra brooks which is pretty good stuff uh for a lot cheaper than jim beam and it's a lot better so definitely i never drank that after i moved to new york city i drank it in in minneapolis because it was it was the cheapest drinkable whiskey the other whiskeys in the same price range were bad, and it was okay. It was mediocre. Jim Beam is not bad. It's not good. It's real mediocre. Yeah, I uh, I can't. I, I I could do Jack, but I couldn't do Jim. I've done Jim, but I I couldn't after my twenty first birthday when I had to do the four. I had to listen to me. Um, I wanted to do um the four horsemen. You know when you do like to four shots in a row and it's like. Jack, John, Jim, you know, Jim, and I don't, I don't fucking remember. But <laughs> yeah, that one. yeah, you had yeah four shots in a row, line them up, and one's Jack, one's Jim Beam, one's Johnny Walker, and one, was it, was it Jose? Was it Jose Cuervo? I forget, but it was so random, the fourth one. And oh, yeah, you do a back-to-back. Yep, <laughs> and I haven't done any of them since, except for Jack Daniels was my go-to drink for a very long time. When I was at the bars, I, my fiance died in 2015 from suicide and I just started <laughs> drinking every day. And I just spent all day at the bars, all night at the bars. And they just knew when I walked in to have, you know, the double Jack shot ready for me and the double Jack and Coke in a pint glass ready for me. And they had my seat ready for me every day, you know, make sure nobody would take it because I was a good tipper. And yeah, I was the opposite of you. I went out and I would get you know, hammered in public and then start shit with people to take out my, you know, frustration with, you know, death and grief because I didn't understand it. And, um, but pills I did mostly at home. Pills I would, I would isolate and not want to be around a lot of people. Um, so now you're in rehab again, but this was, you know, you needed a break. Yeah, I needed some time off. Um, 
since you mentioned Jack Daniels, that's going to. Okay, I, I kind of left out the six years that I lived in Japan. So, in my yeah, 20s. Yeah, you did leave that. So, how did, how did you end up in Japan? Uh, foreign From... exchange student initially, and then I stuck around for another five years afterwards. Holy shit. Um, so, so, when I was in Japan, uh, this is actually when I ran into some negative life stuff and started drinking with for depression and insomnia. And that was the first time I started heavy drinking um, in my mid-20s. But I was there as a foreign exchange student, so I remember, you know, th this is during the first year when I was still a student. And, of course, there's other foreign exchange students from all over the U.S. there. Yep. And, uh, you know, we're talking to each other, and I'm talking to, uh, he said, my name is George Purdy, and I'm from Alabama. And, uh... So we're talking about drinking, and I'm like, yeah, I like to drink Jack Daniels. And Jack Daniels, we just ship that shit up north for you Yankees to drink. Down here, we don't drink nothing but George Dickel. What? <laughs> so six years later, I get back home, and it's like, okay, what is this George Dickel stuff? Yeah. And, oh, I'd like to tell you, George Dickel's a lot better than Jack Daniels. George Dickel's Tennessee whiskey, black label. Yeah, I never touched Jack Daniels again. Mm. Really? Yeah, it costs, well, at least in Wisconsin, it costs more than uh, Jack Daniels, and it's not. I mean, Jack Daniels costs more than George Dickel, and George Dickel tastes twice as good. So... That's such a like, but Jack Daniels sounds like a better name. You don't want to go to the bar and like, give me a shot of George Dickel. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to say we actually, uh, my friends in Wisconsin, we made the bartenders uh, stock it because once I introduced them, they all said, "Oh, this is so much better than that Jack yeah. Daniels stuff." That that's hilarious. That you you're like, hey bartender you know i'm gonna be here you know i'm gonna spend some money you know i'm gonna tip you get me the alcohol I, i'm gonna want to drink while i'm here then yeah then later i switched over to uh clyde may's alabama whiskey i like that and uh then you know the liquor stores in uh, my neighborhood in brooklyn didn't usually have it in stock i mean i would you know they'd have a couple bottles there and i'd buy them out and i say you got to order a case of this and keep, I'll buy a, I'll buy a bottle every week. Just keep it in stock. And it's like, okay. So, you know, they always kept it in stock for me <laughs> because, uh, well, New York city, that was my harm reduction days. I mean, I moved there. Uh, yeah, I moved there in 2006, uh, about the same time we started, uh, the hams group. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we started the Hams Group a, a few months after I moved there. Um, and how so I, were you writing the Hams book when you went into rehab again, or were you already done? Now I was in rehab in two thousand, uh, I think it's two thousand one and two thousand two. Okay. So, yeah, it was after I left that second rehab, I got reinvolved with moderation management. I mean. I had been freaked out because, uh, you know, I was having problems with alcohol, drinking too much, losing my job, and then looking for some support. And, I, you know, I found out that Audrey Kishline had uh, 
uh, the founder of moderation management had killed two people driving drunk and it's like oh boy and then much later i found out oh yeah but she had quit moderation management and joined aa first after joining aa and hearing she was powerless she killed two people while she was driving drunk isn't it amazing when you find out you're powerless um (laughs) that's why i said i laughed as i poured down my first two drinks before i had the other four because i wanted to prove that i could you know not need all six well aa is the worst thing i ever did in my life it was i mean for me, it's all 12 steps are the problem, and particularly the first three. Because, you know, I went to AA meetings for a few months. Yeah, that was after I got out of rehab. Um, yeah, after I got out of the second one, so it was 2002 or 2003. And I said, I have to do something to kill time in the evenings until the liquor stores close. They closed at 8. I was in Minnesota, so, you know. Oh, okay, yeah. It's not, you know, like a real city like New York or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was going to say, we're like, liquor stores are not closed at 8 in New York. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I needed to kill some time till they closed in the evening. I said, okay, I can go to these groups. But after hearing this, alcohol is powerful and human beings are powerless. And... Uh, they have to be saved by an omnipotent deity because alcohol is more powerful than humans. And if you don't believe in an omnipotent deity, that whole message that alcohol is powerful, humans have no power. That's a disaster. That got in my subconscious. Uh, and I drank, you know, I drank the most I ever had in my life while going to AA. I drank five liters of whiskey in five days. And I, you're, you're an academic. You know what I mean? Like, you need to understand shit, I feel like. And you need to... And, like, other people like myself or other people that are addicts and they're not... They get in and, and, you know, luckily I could see, you know, the forest or the trees regardless. But there's some people that they just get indoctrinated in it because they don't know another way. You know, they don't know that there's a harm reduction. They don't know that there's moderation. They don't know that there's these kind of shit. I didn't even know that hams existed you know, until four months ago. And, and by then I was almost three months clean or three years clean. So that just goes to show you not every, so when we're told we're powerless, then we're like, Oh, we're powerless. As opposed to somebody who's like master at their master degree. And you're like, no, 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 no. I need more information. You need to really give me more information for this to make sense to me. And obviously it did not compute with you, which is completely fine. Cause it worked out for the best in the long run, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't care if people go to AA. If that's what you like, go ahead and do it. It's, you know, people should do what they find helpful, whatever works for them. I have a couple friends I know that quit drugs and alcohol by joining the Hare Krishnas. Because uh, you don't, Hare yeah. Krishnas don't drink or do no. drugs, or no. they don't even eat meat, no. you know. So if that works for you, if you want to, Dance the Krishna dance, Hare Krishna. Yeah. I, instead of doing drugs, that's fine. I mean, I'd re- if I had to make a choice, I'd rather do the Krishna dance than say I'm powerless and sit in a church basement. <laughs> and do the Our Father and the Serenity Prayer. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, you know, 
I said I have friends in the Krishnas. I I joined them a couple times doing the Krishna dance. It's okay. They didn't try to convert me or anything. It's like, no. check it out. Take a look. See what we're doing. See if you like it. And yeah, this is cool enough. Yeah. But I am not going to give up my hamburgers for crying out loud. <laughs> no, not my pork chops. Oh, no. Not a good uh, Wisconsin boy that's used to that meat. <laughs> I don't want to give up my whiskey either, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you get out of re- so now we're talking about back to we're we're bouncing around a lot and that's fine because I I don't mind bouncing around. Um, yeah, after I went to AA for a few months, I mean uh, I wound up drinking five liters of whiskey in five days with this whole powerless message in my subconscious, and you know I had such awful withdrawal at that point. I had to check into county detox for three days, you know, to get the the Librium or Valium or whatever benzo they gave me so that I didn't die yeah. of a heart attack because I was, you know. It, you could have died. I mean. I was at that point. I could have had a heart attack. Yeah. I could I feel mean, my heart just, oh, boom, boom, boom. You know, the irregular, rapid heartbeat. No. I think but, alcohol and benzos are the most dangerous to get off of cold turkey because of all the side effects that your body can go through. Like, you yeah. know, potentially have seizures and die between Xanax or alcohol. Yep, yep. Those are uh, the two that you do not want to stop all at once. Those are indeed the most dangerous to stop all at once. Yeah. Um. So you know, I'm sitting there in detox, and you know, I have my, I have my white light experience. <laughs> I didn't say white light, but I said, man, I have to never go to AA again, or it will kill me. I will be dead if I go to any more of these meetings and hear any more that I am powerless and alcohol is powerful. This is not the message that I need to hear. And, uh, well, I almost never went back. I didn't go back for a long time. Uh, but uh, one day, uh, one time, I decided to take 30 days off of drinking. And I hit my 30-day mark and said, hey, these guys owe me a chip. Why don't I go in and get a chip? Yeah. So, you know, I go in, it's who has 30 days, and I raise my hand, and they come up and get my chip, and it's like, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? And They always ask that shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, well, I haven't been to any meetings in the last 30 days, but I did a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, and that was really useful. You might want to check it out. It's really good stuff. There's a uh, door, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all these people that used to talk to me after the meeting, not one of them said one word. Total ostracism. And I said, yeah, I'm done with these guys. This is, yeah. not, this is not for me now. So yeah. this is still about 2003. So, uh, and I'm getting involved with moderation management online at this point. And then they make me like their online director running their uh, listserv, their online uh, discussion group for a couple of years. And then, you know, I kind of, I, I'm volunteering in needle exchange, getting all these ideas together, reading Pat Denning's book and, you know, getting feedback from all these other members of the group you know this is what i do um you know it was like one person says well here was my answer i stopped drinking at home completely i only drink when i go out mm-hmm. and that's cut my intake in and half or to one third of what it used to be and now everything's cool as long as i don't drink at home 
And of course, there's me. I never drink when I go out. I only drink at home because it's safe. But yeah. I want to limit myself to once a week. So everybody's coming up with these different solutions. And, you know, I kind of wrote down that's in the books. Okay, here are different approaches you can take. Some people find it successful to only drink at home, some to only drink when they go out. Some people do this, some people do that, you know. And any positive change is good. You want to stop drinking and driving, but you still want to get drunk every day? That's a good improvement. <laughs> it's much better than drinking and driving every day. Yep. Yeah, actually, yeah, real moderation. That's real harm reduction. You know, moderation is kind of defined as, uh, you, okay, these are the moderate drinking limits. Everybody should stick within these limits and do no more. But harm reduction is not like that. I mean, okay. that's the whole problem with moderation management that I had. They said, you know, if you go over our moderate drinking limits, you should leave our group and go to AA. Uh, and it's like, no, here's this guy that wants to quit drinking and driving, but still wants to get drunk all the time. We should support that. That's a good idea. That's a big improvement. Yeah. And it's like, no, they should be within our limits. They should follow our program or get out. And so we got out. Yep. We got out and we did our own thing. And so we're still doing our own thing. Um, other things uh, in the book besides, there's 17 elements. And they are elements, not steps, because they are all optional. And they can be done in any order. You can start awesome. wherever you want to. You know, if you say, oh, this looks like a good place to start, fine. And if you do one and you solve your problem, you don't have to do the others, because why would you? Yeah. Why keep poking the bear? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's working, you know. You know so, I, I, uh, <laughs> one is a cost-benefit analysis. We talked about that. Um, another is to do a drinking diary. Write down your number of drinks every day. And, uh, well, we do that in the Facebook group, too. Some people do it. I do it. I post my numbers every day. Usually with a song. Oh, yeah, always with I've a video. <laughs> I've noticed that, too. <laughs> usually with a song. Uh, it's usually, yeah, my favorite music. So if you want to know what music I like, you can just <laughs> go to the drink counts. So, oh, I have to post still today. As I decided uh, I'm going to do one of Box Goldberg variations for a change instead of one of these drunk 1920s blues singers. <laughs> change like, it up. <laughs> I like Bach, uh, especially on the harpsichord. It sounds like Earl Scruggs on a banjo. You know, it's all twangy. And mm -hmm. and uh, Mozart once said, uh, he's reputed to have said the harpsichord sounds like two skeletons fucking on a tin roof. <laughs> Which, yeah, I like that sound. Yeah, uh, that's funny. Okay, who knew Mozart had a sense of humor? Well, you probably did. <laughs> <laughs> you probably did. <laughs> now that I say that. Mozart, I didn't know a lot about Mozart. I didn't see the movie I should. I understand he was a pretty good drinking man. Um, did, um, did your book get more popular after the Facebook group existed? Um... Well, I mean, as soon as we, uh, I mean, as soon as we left moderation management, we had our own online group. We were okay. initially doing a Yahoo group, which they actually used to be popular back about 15 years ago. Yeah, when Yahoo Answers were popular, too. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, uh, now it's kind of died out. We don't do the Yahoo group anymore. But yeah, yeah, we we did the Yahoo group, and then I started the Facebook group. I had no idea what Facebook was or how to do a group, and I initially made it an open group, and nobody ever yeah. nobody ever posted anything. And then somebody sent me a message on Facebook. I mean, it, it, this is back when I used to only go on Facebook like once a month. And, you know, somebody posted me a message. If you make this a closed group, I'll talk in it, but not if it's open. Uh, okay, I'll make it a closed group. And all of a sudden, everybody started talking. And then when everyone starts talking, then it's when Facebook's like, hey, we're going to show this in the algorithm to other people that might like this. And then more people find the page. And then next thing you know, you know, here we yeah. are. So Facebook it became our main support group. There's also a, a forum that there's a lot of people on the forum too. It's uh, you know your regular V bulletin type forum, um, and those are our two main uh, things right now. Uh, some of our members are doing the Zoom meetings too. So I think I saw that like support group meetings. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. So at like nine o'clock at night though, I think. Um, there's I think there are four of them now. Um, a couple of them are at nine, but I think there's one in the, I know there's one in the afternoon. At least one is in the afternoon. Okay. Cause, Cause I was thinking about hopping on, I think one of the nine o'clock ones, cause I'm out of my eight o'clock meeting by then. Yeah. So, but yeah. Yes. I, I like, I, I think support that people don't realize that like, yeah, AA helps people and yeah, rehab can help people, but like therapy and having support with other people and not have to feel so alone is two of the most important things that can come, you know, into your recovery. You know, when you're an addict or an alcoholic or have AUD or SUD, whatever you want to identify as, <clears throat> I think being able to like, you know, talk to people is important. Mm -hmm. If not, then you're stuck in your head and that's when things start spinning out and you want to spin out of control and then, you know, do some stupid shit, you know, mm -hmm. So I think they, that that's why the groups are so important, you know, whether it's, you know, a Facebook group or whether it's an in-person group or whether it's a Zoom meeting. I think just the support of not having to, even the people that don't talk in our, in like the hams group, I'm sure they feel happy just seeing other people and what they're saying, like, oh, okay, good. I'm, I'm just like them. Mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. I'm not alone in how I feel and what I'm thinking right now. And oh, I'm not yeah. alone in, in how I'm controlling things or not controlling things. And that's an important thing because, like, that hasn't always been the case for all the years. You know, back in the day when they they wrote the book, you know, they wrote that book, you know, there wasn't an internet where people could get support groups. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's, like, a huge deal that I think that people don't even consider as an option. I, if I would have known that I could have been sober without going to rehab and just like getting, going to support meetings, support groups and getting some therapy. You know, I didn't even fucking know that there was a shot I could have taken, you know, mm. to help, help with the cravings. I didn't know any of that <laughs> because when you're an addict, you don't look for ways out. You look for ways to stay in. So like, it's not like I was Google and like, how do I get out of this? It was rehab Jails, jails, institutions, and death was the only way I was getting out of my addiction. That's how far out and far gone I was. 
like my before and after pictures are kind of the same. You know, I, I was a heavy guy then. I was like Chris Farley of opiate users. You know, <laughs> I was fucking gaining weight every time, and my face would get all bloated and blotchy. So like I'm heavier now than I was then, but I look skinnier because my face isn't all like all fucking huge anymore from drinking and using every day, you know, and you don't go to the bathroom and it's just a disgusting thing of addiction. Like I'm so happy to be out of that shit. But mm. I, I do say to my wife all the time, I know, I can't wait to go to Paris someday and have a glass of wine. You know, mm. or go on a vacation. Like, you know, for me, I can't drink at home. Like mm-hmm. the opposite of you. I can't drink at home and I can't drink where I live mm-hmm. because that's when I spin out of control. But if mm-hmm. I'm like in Disney World or like on a vacation, I can have a drink. I know that I can. And I know that I'm not powerless to alcohol. I am powerless to pills. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Like I, I give it up to real what I call real deal alcoholics, the ones that are powerless. Like you said, that that's not a thing. But there are people that are powerless, that they can't help it, you know, and they need, you know, they they really, they feel powerless. Mm. They feel powerless. There's a difference between feeling powerless and being powerless. You know, feeling it is is something that isn't even true sometimes, but actually being it. But to walk past a liquor store or to go into a store and then buy cigarettes and then have to walk past the, you know, the refrigerator and be like, am I going to get something? I don't have to deal with that shit. I don't. I could take it or leave it. If there were pills behind the counter, I don't know if I could say no to that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. I can't tell you if I could say no to that. I don't have to worry about that. Luckily, um, because some people they don't know how. They don't know how to stop. I, I've seen it. You, they just. My, my ex, my fiance, she was bipolar, schizophrenic, alcoholic. She literally did not know how to stop. You know, mm-hmm. and then ended up taking her life but Mm. she did not know how to stop and i'm sitting there like how do you not know how to stop drinking just fucking stop like meanwhile i'm doing eight 30 milligram percocet you know roxy's and i'm just getting high off my ass because i'm completely powerless to that i'm like i don't know how you can't stop drinking that wine as a sniff another line (laughs) you know like so i i truly believe in harm reduction and in what you know you guys promote i think it's a, an amazing thing that isn't talked about enough yet because everyone just thinks like it's black or white you're sober or you're not mm-hmm. you're drinking or you're not you're using or you're not mm-hmm. and it's not true there's plenty of people out there that can live happy lives drinking one day a week what do you do like scheduled intox what do you call them scheduled intox or planned yeah planned. i call it planned because it's it's pretty thoroughly planned. It's planned, you know, when to get the booze, how to drink it, where to drink it, what I'm going to do that day. You know, the whole thing is planned. It's not uh, it's not an impulse. It's not yeah. walking past a bar and saying, oh, I have to have a drink, and then winding up drunk because, no, I don't like bars anyway. They're too loud. <laughs> too noisy for me. I don't, uh, you know. Especially in the U.S. Yeah, Japan, I, you can actually find some quiet ones. It's a little better, but I, nah. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, right. Though it is. Here's the thing: for uh, I mean, for about five years or so, I was on my harm reduction plan, and it was totally. I only drink at home. Um, I'm always absent in 
public, I will either drink to intoxication, I'll drink my fifth of whiskey, or I won't have anything. And then after about five years, I was uh, at a, a dinner, I mean, just a little dinner with my friend and her mom and uh, her brothers, and everybody's having a glass of wine with dinner. And I said, you know, why not have one glass of wine and stop? First of all, one glass of wine is going to have no effect. So it's just the same as drinking water. And uh, I don't like wine anyway, so it's not going to be that tempting. I said, yeah, I'll have one. And uh, yeah, I had one stopped. No temptation to go on. So now, for the past five years or so, if I want to have a social drink in the right situation it's no big deal i'll have one and stop yeah uh i usually like guinness is a good one to get guinness is really tasty and it's got that strong flavor i can sip a guinness for like an hour i I can't i i've been to amsterdam i can't drink it anymore or no that's heineken i'm thinking of heineken Heineken okay no i'm thinking of heineken I, i i can't drink heineken anymore because i've had it straight from amsterdam when i was you know, I'm in Amsterdam and I was getting high the and I was smoking weed the entire time, but I did have Heineken's with dinner and I was like, Holy shit, this is like the best Heineken I've ever had in my life. And they're like, Yeah, we make it here. I'm like, Oh, and it tastes bitter by the time it gets to the States. Yeah. So, in, <laughs> so uh, you like a Guinness with your friends, I mean here and there. Yeah. Which yeah, it's got a lot of flavor to it, so you can drink it real slow. But in the immortal words of Dennis Hopper, Heineken Fuck Heineken, Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> Best line of the whole movie. <laughs> uh, PBR. Just I I I used to go to this place in Massachusetts on um I think it was Monday nights and it would be dollar PBRs and dollar wings, <laughs> and it was like I think the place was called Pizings and it was like somewhere in like South Shore, Massachusetts. And, um, yeah, we used to go, like, every Monday and get dollar we, pibbers, you know, we go <laughs> dollar pibbers and dollar wings. And, uh, yeah, those were uh, the old dream. That was about a decade ago I was used to do that. Because I had, like, a six-month stretch where I wasn't doing pills, and I was just, like, being good and being a regular person. And then, you know, trauma happens, and then I go right back to, like, where are the pills? Where's my escape? And at least now I can, you know, I don't have to escape shit. You know, I used to use to escape because I never learned how to grieve as a child. So every time I had grief, I wasn't, I didn't know how to deal with it. You know, when you start drinking at 11 for fun, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. my first drink was Captain and Coke. And we would watch The Outsiders. And, you know, we thought we were cool just having a Captain and Coke and watching The Outsiders in fifth grade. And then when someone we knew died a year later... We didn't know. I didn't know what to do, and I thought, well, I know drinking makes me feel better. Maybe I'll drink and I'll feel better about him dying. And because um, it was a kid that was hit by a car, like a friend of mine, mm-hmm. so we were like really like taken by. It wasn't like a cancer grandparent, you know. It was a kid, and so yeah, we drank about it. So then it was a learned behavior, you know, that mm-hmm. I taught mm-hmm. myself that every time something bad happens, you get drunk, and then when like alcohol bored me by 22 because i drank so hard at 21 that 
I was like, I need something new every day. And then I found pills. And then I was really off to the races. Because alcohol didn't make me unmanageable. I still got to work. Eh, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> there has been a few times that I was late to meetings on Thursdays because I used to go to White Trash Wednesday at this one bar in Jersey where it's like, you know, dollar shots, all, dollar drinks all night. And then you wake up and your car is parked in two different spots. And you're like, I didn't drive here. I don't remember that. You know, like there's been some rough nights from, you know, it's called the pennant. Well, it used to be called the pennant. They've been shut down for a while. But any of my friends that are listening from South Jersey, they know what White Trash Wednesday was and what kind of a shit show and what kind of a hangover the next day. This is the kind of place that's cleaner to piss outside than inside their bathrooms. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just stepping mm-hmm. on piss in their bathrooms. So, like, those are the kind of bars that, you know, I would frequent in my drinking days. So, like, when I was ready to isolate, I was ready to isolate. And the pills helped for that. I was not going out anymore. I was just, like, not... I wasn't talking to you unless you were trying to get buy pills from me or I was buying pills from you. And I was cutting off everybody, you know. And my life was a fucking wreck because of pills. And mm-hmm. that never happened with alcohol. You know, alcohol mm-hmm. just stopped working for me. And... But... And like I said, I drank non-alcoholically for nine months in my recovery. And if you were mm-hmm. to ask me what's my recovery date, I still say four twenty-five eighteen. You know, I can I'm alcohol free for eighteen months as of yesterday, but my recovery date, in my opinion, is still four twenty-five eighteen, because mm. that's when my life stopped being unmanageable. Like fuck the fuck that first part of the step. You know, I mm. I concentrate on what's after the semicolon. Mm-hmm. You know, my life was unmanageable. That's what I like about the first step is the unmanageability part of it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't I don't care about the first part. I care about the second part. Yeah. I mean it's the first part is the real problem. Yeah. I mean, because I mean you're not taking pills now because you have the power to say, No, I don't want those pills anymore. That's bad news. Yeah. You have I, the power. I, as somebody in my rehab used to always say, right now we have the power. But as soon as we get high, we lose that cho- we lose that choice, we lose that power. Mm-hmm. Because, and I agree with him with this because his thing was meth and mine was pills. That as soon as you go back into that like state of mind, there's no easing yourself back into getting high. You can you can get a buzz with a drink, you know. You mm-hmm. can ease yourself back into drinking. You're either getting high or you're sober. You know, when Mm -hmm. it comes to drugs. So, like, I could never do harm reduction for pills. Mm -hmm. I've already said that, you know, to my wife. I was like, you know, I love harm reduction. I think it's an amazing thing. I think it's an amazing thing for alcohol. Because I really believe it can be done for alcohol. But I could never do it for pills. I'm way, I I don't know how. I can't even take, like, I I don't, I can't take anything responsibly. You know, when it comes to that kind of thing. If I Mm -hmm. have it, I'm going to use it. And I'm going to excessively use it because I'm going to want to keep that feeling going once I get that feeling. Alcohol, mm. I don't feel that way. So that's that's why I'm still in your group. That's why I still participate in the comment section here and there whenever I see something that spikes my interest or grabs my attention that I feel like I can speak to. But when it comes to drugs, I don't think I could do this. I, I don't think I could do harm reduction for drugs. Well... Um, 
I, I want to use different terminology. I, I want to talk about controlled drug use rather than saying harm reduction. Okay. Because we know we can do harm reduction. You know, we can, for example, use clean needles, even when we're not changing our amounts at all. We're not in control of the amounts. Mm-hmm. But we're taking steps to reduce harm. You know, we can do harm reduction by, you know, finding a safe, a trustworthy source of supply instead of just getting the first goddamn thing on the street, which now might be full of fentanyl or God knows what. So we can certainly practice harm reduction even if we're not controlling the amounts. It's like I said, we'll support the guy that says, yeah, I want to quit drinking and driving, but I want to get drunk every day. Yeah. He's not controlling his amounts, but he is controlling one harmful aspect of his behavior. And I think that's really important. And also, you know, we need to realize that a lot of people change by small steps. The first step of change might be really small, like just coming into the needle exchange to pick up clean needles. And they're not interested in anything else at that point. They don't want to rehab. They don't want to quit. And, you know, that's one of the things, important things I learned at the exchange, you know, when people come to get clean needles, you say, thank you. You're doing a good thing by using clean needles. You don't say, do you want to go to rehab? Do you want to change? Do you want to do this? You know, you don't do you any You don't make them that. feel bad about it. No. When people are ready to change, they'll come forth and say, hey, can you give me some info about methadone, about a rehab program? You just wait till they're ready. Until they're ready, you just, you know, you encourage them. I mean, you thank them because they're doing a good thing by using clean needles because they're not spreading infectious diseases. Yep. So just say, thank you. You're doing a great thing. Yeah. Make them feel good about coming back again from, you know, to do another exchange. Mm-hmm. Making sure mm-hmm. they feel comfortable to walk in there like, oh, I, don't, I would go do that, but they're just going to berate me the entire time. So fuck that. I'm, I'm just going to use this dirty one instead. Yeah. I mean, I've heard this so many times from people that don't know what they're talking about they'll say oh you should put conditions on people to get these needles you should make them get involved in groups or something i mean you know you'll see this like in comments on newspaper stories by people that don't know shit about what they're talking about and you know i have to say they tried that 20 years ago 30 years ago you know what happened everybody stopped showing up for clean needles as soon as you put any conditions on it, people, no, I don't want anything to do with this. I'd rather use the used needle than fuck with these fuckers that want to control my life. Screw these yep. people. No, you don't control people. You you actually, well, you show them some love. You say, I care about you. I care about your health. And I want you not to catch a disease. So here, here's a clean needle. It's free. Use it. Yeah. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Like, because... That that it it really does it drives them away because it makes them feel like the pre- like oh that they have an ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. I thought you just wanted to give me clean needles, but now you just you're trying to throw all this other stuff at me, and it it makes you untrustworthy to an addict. Mm-hmm. You know they're like oh no I don't want to do all that I'd rather choose the dirty one because I don't want to hear the speech, I don't yeah. want to hear all that. I mean it makes you untrustworthy to a human being. You don't have to be a person addicted to drugs. Just any human being, you know, oh, wait a minute. I thought you were going to help me, but you have all these strings attached. You know, uh uh-uh. 
I don't yeah. want to deal with your bullshit, you know, if you're going to throw this crap on me. I thought you were upfront and decent, but no. Plus, you're just... like, I don't want you in a fucking meeting if you don't want to be there. What are you going to help? You know, like, if you're, like, we don't do court cards here. Like, we won't. And the the people at the at the court, at the courthouse, like, one of the main people um, helped my wife with her first divorce um, and was our lawyer. So, like, she knows us. And she's like, oh, hey, like. I can get you guys on the drug court list. This way, you know, you guys can sign off on on meetings if people want need to go to meetings. And we were like, yeah, no, we're good. Like, if they need a meeting because they have to be in a meeting, they're mm-hmm. not going to participate in said meeting. They're not going to participate. Our meetings are basically CRT. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. ba- you know, it's just going around the room and talking and talking about random shit. There's no like set thing we do have like you know like i said the meetings for like tonight's for family and friends of addicts and they can come and instead of al-anon where like it's only support for family and friends to talk amongst each other this one is specifically for family and friends to come talk to other addicts that are in recovery to get some hope you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. people can come and ask me questions like why doesn't my addict son do this why does my addict daughter do that you know, and we can give them answers from the perspective of somebody in recovery, but also people that have been in addiction too. You mm-hmm. know, and Alanon didn't do that. And on like on top of that, like um, I, I'm about to lose my train of thought. I'm trying to keep it. Like the guy that comes in here high, that's fine with me, man. You're trying to use speed to get off a of heroin. Okay, it's not how I would do it. But if you over if you relapse on heroin, let me know and I'll get you some more Narcan. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and because I don't he's coming down here on his own. He's 41 years old and lives alone and he's still walking down and coming into a group meeting. Mm-hmm. That tells me a lot, you know, and yeah, he's sometimes high off his ass and just completely dipped out. But the fact is, he got off his couch and walked about a half mile to sit and try to talk. And that that means something to me, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. other groups, they would tell them, oh, "Come back when you're sober." It's like, what? You're just gonna go, just go get extra high now? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pat has some stories about that in her book. Uh, it's a, actually Jeannie Little tell, tells this story. Pat's partner, um, the first harm reduction group they held, and uh, oh, one of the guys nodded off. Um, and it's like everybody in the group is looking at her. What are you going to do? And she puts a pillow behind his head. <laughs> and then they continue their discussion. And, uh, yeah, because that's what you do. You don't say, oh, get out of here. You're high. No, that's not a harm no. reduction group. No. He, uh, interestingly, yeah. um, I did sign. Uh, I had one instance where one guy had me sign his court cards. Um. Yeah, this is one we used to do the chat, the chat room, okay. which we haven't been doing lately. Well, now we have Zoom. We don't have to type in uh, <laughs> the the chat thing anymore and do the text chat. But we used to have the text-based chat. And the guy came in, and he's like, I'm, I'm getting court-ordered. I have to go to meetings, and I'm not going to those fucking AA meetings. Um, if I can get my, if I get the judge to agree or whoever to agree, would you sign off for me? Um, and it's like, yeah, you want me to send an email and yeah, I, I can send an email that you came in to chat. 
And so he'd come in to chat an hour, one hour every week. And uh, so, yeah, I sent off the email. Most of the time in the chat, we spent talking about what a stupid idea it is to send people to meetings to get cards signed. It's it's all about accountability. I mean, half the fucking time, they're not even alcoholics or addicts. They're not even anything. They're Sometimes they're like child molesters, and they just want to have them on a leash. They want to be able to oh, say, yeah. like, I yeah, know where yeah. they're at once a day for 90 days. They're doing 90 and 90. There's a whole documentary called 13th Step. And oh, that do- I'm in that. Are you? Yeah, unless Monica cut me out finally. I, 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 I was in it. Maybe you were, and you know what? They did talk about harm reduction in it. You probably were, and I just don't remember because um, I watched it so long ago, and I didn't know, you know, who you were to correlate it. But yeah, the Thirteenth Step documentary really gets into it about you know how they'll send people to AA meetings from the court that aren't even having a problem, but they just want them to make sure they're signing a court card every day and make sure they know where they're at once a day for an hour, and then those people are predators. And then yeah, they prey yeah. on, you know, women in there, and there's been so many deaths and all that kind of shit that came from the program. And AA doesn't want to talk to fucking anybody about it. I mean, in that documentary, they tried talking to them. They tried going to headquarters in New York City, and they wouldn't even let them in the door, barely. They let oh, them yeah. into the waiting room, and then they kicked them out. Yeah. Well, my guy was uh, DUI. And aside from talking about this, th- that we thought it was stupid to get car cards signed, we'd also talk about you know, drinking and driving. And he's like, you know, that was a really stupid thing to do. I'm never going to drink and drive again. I'm not going to stop drinking because I have mm-hmm. no interest in that. But drinking and driving, no, I'm going to find some way to avoid this because I don't want to go through this bullshit ever again. And it's like, yeah, that's a good motivation for you <laughs> to find ways not to drink and drive. Yep. Yeah, and whatever it takes you know, if it, if that's all it takes, then even better. You know, just like going to harm reduction and not needing to do the whole powerless. Uh, I don't know, man. Either way, all I know is that if I ever want to drink again, it's because of your group that I'm confident enough that I can actually do that in moderation. You know, and mm-hmm. I know I'm not the only one that appreciates that. I mean, there's thousands of people in that group, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if your intent is not to get hammered, uh, if your intent is to have a glass of wine with a meal, yeah, there's no reason you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, if you know, if you really want to get hammered and you say, oh, I'm going to have one and stop, you know, that's just lying to yourself because you know you're having one because you want to get hammered. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with getting hammered because I do it once a week, but that works for me. You, uh, have, a, you have a, you have like, is it like Saturday every week or do you like depend on? What's going on? Do you like Sundays for football? Like, do you pick a day depending on what's going on? Um, for the past year, um, pretty much since COVID, it's been Tuesday. Okay. Now, I, I mean, I write full time, so I'm my own boss. I can have my own weekend any day of the week I want. So yeah. Um, I just got in the habit if I. Um, well, you're in Pennsylvania, you know, all the liquor stores were closed, you know, all this insanity and everybody's driving to Delaware and New York City and everything yep. to buy booze. Yeah. So, um, I found out 
Well, I, mean, I had I actually my... quit drinking two weeks before that. 229 <laughs> was my alcohol-free date. And then March 13th, everything shut down. And luckily for me, dispensaries stayed open. So I didn't have to worry about running all around. I just went to my dispensary and got my cannabis, and that was good. <laughs> but no, my brother had to do the same shit, though. My brother likes to have a drink here and there. And he was like, everything's closed, man. I can't go fucking anywhere for alcohol. It's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I didn't drink for like a month. And uh, then I uh, started Googling around and looking because, well, oh, I remember why. It was my birthday was coming up. It's like, yeah, I want to get hammered on my birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, started looking and saw, I saw uh, the... The distillery, the New Liberty Distillery in in Philadelphia, will deliver. Okay. Uh, and I said, oh, this is cool. So I made an order from them. Of uh, So I've been getting delivery for the past year. So now I know if I order on Sunday, I'll get my delivery on Tuesday. So oh, I got, okay. I got in the habit of ordering on Sunday and getting the delivery on Tuesday and then. Yeah, I work weekends. I, I write and do research on weekends. What are you working on now? Oh, yeah. I have to talk about that because I have new books out. Actually, it was supposed to be one book, but it wound up being 900 pages long. It was too long to publish in one volume. <laughs> so I had to split it into part one and part two. So it's called uh, Strychnine and Gold. It is the story of the uh, <clears throat> 19th and early 20th century addiction cure institutes. Um, and, you know, the more I looked into the story, the more fascinating I found it. And I found there's just really not a lot of good research done on it. Okay, in 1886, in Russia, this doctor discovered that if he gave people injections of strychnine, uh, you know, drunkards, uh, they would stop drinking. You know, they would come in actively drinking every day. He would give them injections for three days, and then on the third day, they couldn't stand to drink alcohol anymore. They couldn't bear to look at it even. Developed a total aversion to it. Mm-hmm. And so this Russian doctor, he publishes his article, and it gets picked up, it gets translated into English, it gets published in, like, every medical journal in Britain and the United States. You know, it's all over the place, except one place. Uh, uh, the United States at this time has one specialty addiction journal, alcoholism treatment journal. That's called the Quarterly Journal of Inebriety, and they don't mention it. Because all these people say, we know the answer. The answer is to lock people up for a year and give them religion. And we don't like drug therapy. We don't like pharmaceutical therapies. And we are not going to adopt this. We don't care. Is that the Oxford group or whatever? No, the Oxford group didn't exist yet. Okay. Now, this was called the American Association for the Cure of uh, Inebriates. Okay. Um, and they were trying to talk states into building these big inebriate asylums, like they had insane asylums, but these would be for drunkards. And there were a couple of them built, but they had very little success convincing the uh, state legislatures 
to build these things. Mm-hmm. Because when they did build one and get it into operation, they found out, you know, we could confine these people for a year. And when they got out, what's the first thing they did? Drank. Drank. <laughs> Drank, yeah. They were counting down the days like somebody in a cell. Like they had to check it off <laughs> that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was not really effective, but these were the top doctors. These were the top addiction doctors of the day. These were the experts, and they said, we have a solution. This is our way. We're going to do it our way, and we're not going to pay any attention to these crazy Russians that think they can use pharmaceuticals to cure addiction. And so, you know, the people, the doctors treating addiction basically didn't pick up on it, even though it was published in English language everywhere. Some of the GPs, general practitioners, who weren't specializing in addiction, used it. Mm-hmm. And there was this one guy, a doctor named Leslie Keeley, who lived in Dwight, Illinois, out in the middle of nowhere. And he read the article about strychnine. And he was already selling a patent medicine that's promised to cure alcoholism. And he said, well, oh, this is an interesting idea. I'm going to give it a try. So he tried it. It worked. Um, within a couple of years, a whole bunch of people were flocking to Dwight to take his cure. Yeah. And then he got national publicity from the Chicago Tribune. And by 1891, there were a thousand people a day taking the treatment at Dwight. Mm. And he was saying, it's my great discovery, my secret formula that I won't tell anybody. You know, he didn't tell anybody. Yeah, I read, some Russians invented this, and I read about it in journal. No, I am the great doctor. I spent years and decades studying alcoholism and discovering this. Yeah, Yeah, you know, he's a big salesman. He's good at salesmanship, but he stumbled onto something that worked. And, you know, so, yeah, so they developed these Keeley Institutes. Uh, They say by 1891, there were like a thousand people a day getting treated. In Dwight, and you know, this is like too many, so starts creating all these branches, and there's like 126, 126 branches worldwide eventually of these institutes. So, yeah, yeah, people. And he also said it's the gold cure. It's say, I'm giving you strychnine. <laughs> no, I'm giving you gold. It's my secret formula with gold in it. <laughs> that only I know. <laughs> that only I know, and I will never reveal my secret. Because the other doctors cannot be trusted with it. Did the Russian doctor, like, was he dead by this point? Because, um, like, he's, somebody's out there, like, basically stealing his work. But, I mean, I guess it is back in the 18, 1900s where it's not, like, world news and you find out on TV right away. It takes a while to see it in a journal. I mean, I never heard the Russians talk about it. Uh, a bunch of other Russian doctors picked up on the thing, and uh, one guy a couple of years later published, I've treated 500 people with strychnine, and, you know, it was very successful at getting them to stop. Some of them quit permanently, you know, some of them overcame their aversion and went back to drinking again, but it definitely made them stop. Kind of reminds me, it wasn't acid invented from like a german doctor that was like trying to help alcoholics to like quit drinking oh lsd no yeah no uh that's not how it was invented um or it was used for 
Yeah, in the the 1950s and 1960s, it was used to treat alcoholism in Saskatchewan, Canada. Yeah, they had great success with it. Um, It was invented about, I think it was in the 1930s. Uh, They were trying to develop something totally different. So... It was Germany, though, right? I think it was a German doctor. I believe it's Germany. It's Europe for sure. Germany. That would make sense because in the 30s, they were doing all that crazy shit for Hitler, like where they were trying to create. No, it had nothing to do with Hitler. Okay, that's good. Because I I liked acid, (laughs) so that makes me feel good. Might have been Switzerland. (laughs) I can't remember his name now. But of course, like then our government gets a hold of LSD and they're like, oh, no, we're going to use it for mind control and a truth serum. <laughs> and then the hippies, they knew what to fucking do with it. They were like, no, no, you guys are all doing this wrong. <laughs> yeah, I remember the, the guy in the guy that invented it, um, which was for some totally different purpose. He was like looking for a germicide or some medicine that had nothing to do with uh, the mind. Mm -hmm. He wasn't looking for a hallucinogen or a psych drug or something completely different, but he accidentally ingested some of it. And he rode his bicycle home, and he started tripping while he's riding his bike home. There's some famous commemorative uh, blotters with the picture of his bicycle on it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it all it's probably all streaking lights and everything. Yeah, but that was the first acid trip. This is this guy uh you know riding his bike home and he like you know, it was an accidental ingestion. It turned out he ingested like a huge dose. It was big, big Well, dose. I mean, think about it. Like it really like a dose even like this would be two doses, you know. Like this would be like two doses. Yeah, I mean, so, acid you measure in micrograms. You don't yeah. measure in milligrams, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think that I most I ever... The problem with acid for me was that you build a tolerance really fast. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, like, when I was looking to escape, you know, drinking and do something else every day, I got into hallucinogenics first before I got into pills. And and then I quickly realized that this is not something that I can do. That I can do every day as a way to escape because of the hangover you got from acid. Like you need the entire next day off and it's an 18 hour trip. And then your tolerance at one point I needed like six hits, you know, just to trip because it was so like the tolerance was built so much from it. So it's just crazy. The different, like I've been through a lot of different drugs over the years, trying new shit, trying out different ways to escape. And now I don't have to escape, at least. I can just face shit and, you know, deal with it and move on. Yeah, I'd still like to try acid sometime before I die. I've never had it. Do it with somebody who's experienced? Oh, absolutely. I would not do it alone. I would do it with the... As I've read enough about it, yeah, you have a guide with you. That's the way to do it. Yeah. And somebody to play nice music and have flowers and things in the room and, you know. That's yeah. how they did it in Saskatchewan when they were treating the alcoholics, you know. They would give them, yeah, they'd have flowers and art pictures and they'd play music. And, you know, they'd give them psychotherapy while they were tripping. You know, they'd talk to them. And uh, then, uh, so the guys in Toronto didn't like what the guys in Saskatchewan were doing. So the guys at the Addiction Research in Toronto said, we're going to prove that acid doesn't cure. 
alcoholism. So they took their subjects, they gave them acid, they blindfolded them and strapped them to their beds. And guess what? It didn't work? It didn't work. Who would have thought? Uh, how many of them actually went into permanent trips forever <laughs> and never came back again? Uh, I'm shit. not sure about that, but it Holy definitely shit. didn't cure anybody's alcoholism. That's Yeah, but it's like, well, we're controlling for all external stimuli. No, you're not. You're deliberately setting things up to fail. Yeah, you're not even trying. Yeah. So, Is yeah. your new book out yet, or are you still writing? Uh, the Strychnine and Gold book, I... Published about a month ago, I had to self-publish it, like my first book, because, you know, it's trying to get a publisher, and it's like that. You wrote 900 pages on this, so we can't publish that. It's too long. Um, That's what they said to Tarantino about Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> the script was too long, and you got to cut stuff out. And he said, "No, I can't." <laughs> That's when he made it into two. Um. Are you working on something new now? That are they? Well, number one, they're all on Amazon. Your Ham's book, and your Strychnine and Gold. Yeah, they're all on Amazon. I'll put uh, the links too if you want to either of them. There's going to be links in the description, either on YouTube or Spotify. Just you can click on the link, and you'll be able to go right to either book. Um, and what are you working on now? Um. So, what I initially started doing was writing a history of addiction treatment in the United States. Um, and uh, this was while I was working on my PhD and pretty soon I got too busy writing. So I dropped my PhD program and this happens every time I go to school, you know, here I'm supposed to be doing psychology, PhD, addiction psychology. And instead, Oh, wow, this is really interesting about these straight nine injections and everything. And he had 126 institutes, and nobody knows about this. It was a huge addiction treatment industry. Yeah, I never and heard like, of it. Nobody's heard of it. Yeah, this is just uh, so. So anyway, I was, I was kind of my, my initial question was, how did 12-step programs get into hospitals? How did they become the standard treatment in United States hospitals? when they never published any scientific papers that showed that they were effective. I mean, normally when a hospital adapts a treatment, it's based on publications in scientific journals. So how the hell did this happen? Because they didn't have any proof. They had no evidence. I have guesses for that. I, I have, have assumptions. Answers. Go back to the 1960s. The 1960s, uh, hospitals severely overbuilt there were no restrictions on hospitals you didn't need to get a permit to expand they introduced this in the 70s after because all these hospitals overbuilt and they all had all these empty beds about half the beds of every hospital were empty they couldn't fill them up and they didn't know what to do with them so that's one part of the puzzle. All these empty beds sitting in the hospital and these people wanting to fill them up so they can make some money and not go belly up bankrupt. Okay. Uh, also in the 1960s, uh, there was all kinds of lobbying going on to get the insurance companies to pay for alcoholism treatment. And they did. Uh, especially, uh, but most of the time they would only pay for treatment in a hospital. 
but no hospitals were giving any treatment. So we had this source of payment. We had all these empty hospital beds. And we have this guy who comes up. Uh, oh, God, his name is slipping out of my head right now because I haven't written about this guy recently. Anyway, this guy, he, was, he had been an accountant for Caterpillar Tractors in Peoria, Illinois. That was his background, accounting and economics. And uh, he got bored with uh, Caterpillar after a while, and he made a little medical accounting company, and that was very successful. And uh, then they hired him to take over this failing hospital called Comprehensive Care Corporation. It was a failing chain of like three or four hospitals in California. And they hired him to bail it out because he was pretty successful. And he took over and he said, Hey, I've got a great idea. There's all these people that want alcoholism treatment. There's all these insurance companies that will pay for it. And there's all these empty hospital beds. I'll send in personnel to do the treatment. We'll get the hospitals to let us use their beds. And we'll split the money with the hospital. So, yeah. So we'll make a contract with them for three years. We'll, pro we'll provide the people to do the treatment. And he's like, okay, what treatments are available? Well, there's aversion therapy where we make people throw up. That's pretty effective, but that's expensive, and that requires a lot of doctors. Oh, and there's a 12-step program. That's really cheap. We can hire people, you know, that are high school graduates or even dropouts as long as they went to AA, and they can teach the steps. And we can hire them for minimum wage. We'll send them in as counselors. We'll put one doctor in charge. And wow, this will make a ton of money. That makes so much sense. So he ran a trial at one hospital. It went great. Went to another. You know, eventually he had his program running in every hospital in the country. It was going great. Of course, the contracts ran out after three years. And the hospital said, hey, we don't need this guy. We can do it ourselves. We, yeah. we watch what he's doing. And CompCare Corporation went from, you know, this multi-million dollar company making all these tons of monies and a total crash into bankruptcy. But yeah, he spread the 12-step treatment program into all, all these hospitals and that's how it became standard. I'm so glad that I met, my rehab wasn't a 12-step rehab. Like they, 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 you know, we had big books and stuff like that, but they weren't like, oh, you have to do your 12, you know what I mean? Like, it was 28 days, and we shot around playing horse, you know what I mean, in the, in the back. Mm -hmm. Southern California is beautiful every day. We played a lot of basketball, and then we did our group, you know, meetings three times a day, you know, the groups that you get into during rehab. But, like, they didn't push 12 steps whatsoever. They did trick us into AA. You know, when I say trick, I mean, you know, the only time we could ever leave our house was to go to the noon meeting or 8 p.m. meeting. So mm. you en you end up getting excited to go to AA because it's the only time you get to leave the house and see other people is when you're going to AA. Mm. <laughs> so they did you did kind of get tricked into AA that way, but it wasn't like they were like shoving twelve steps down your throat inside the sober living or the rehab, which is good because I wouldn't have fared well there. I wouldn't have reacted well to that early in sobriety. I can handle all the shit that's negative now and not want to spin out and get high and, you know, hurt myself. But like early on, 
I needed, you know, to give a little reins. Like, let me learn it. Let me figure it out. And I will, and I did. You know, and I have been figuring it out. It's an ongoing process of figuring shit out. Because every day there's something new I gotta figure out. You know, even in being fucking clean, I gotta figure shit out every day. And that's life. I just didn't know that was life for everybody. I just, you know, <laughs> all I knew for so long was getting high, you know, and but now I don't have to do that anymore. So I'm I'm glad because I was not myself, you know. I was a shut in of a person. I mean, I was doing stand-up comedy, though, ironically, mm. in, in addiction. I, I was going to the comedy clubs. I was always in Philly um, at Helium or the Good Good Comedy Theater in Chinatown. And then I would drive to Harrisburg and do shows there. Like, I got arrested once, and I literally was, like, yelling at the cops. Like, you know, I got a show in Harrisburg. I got to get the fuck out of here. Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you taking me in? I got to go. And they're like, yeah, you just bought drugs, and we watched you. So you're going to come with us. Like, they literally were watching my dealer, and I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, after I left, you know, getting out of the police station, what did I do? I went right back to my dealers to buy more, knowing that they were doing paperwork on me and knowing mm-hmm. I needed to get high before I went on stage that night. But that's just because, like I said, I don't know how to do shit responsibly when it comes to pills. Yeah, well... You know, our name is HAMS. It's Harm Reduction, Abstinence, and Moderation Support. Because, I mean, the studies, the huge uh, government study, NISARC, National Epidemiological Survey of Alcohol and Related Conditions, they found half of people who recover from alcohol dependence, as defined by the DSM-4, half recover by quitting, half recover by controlled drinking. Uh, half of people are going to find quitting is the best option for them. It's either the easiest or the safest or whatever. So, and half of people are going to find controlled drinking is their best option. So we want to say, yeah, we will support you in the goal that you choose for yourself. We're not going to tell you, you should moderate, you should do harm reduction, you should do abstinence. No, it's up to you. Find your best goal. We'll support you in whichever one you pick. And, of course, you can always switch your goal later. Yeah. If uh, abstinence isn't working, try moderation. I mean, abstinence wasn't working for me when I was trying to go to AA. I was drinking more than ever. Hey, you know your strengths and you know your weaknesses, and that's what's important. (laughs) Exactly. And you can experiment around in our program, find what path works best for you, and we will support you in whatever path you want. You know, maybe you want to quit alcohol and smoke weed. That works for a lot of people. Works for me. I'm sure it works for me. And I don't even smoke it. I just use the, you know, edibles, the the capsules. Because, again, changing my relationship. I didn't want to smoke it because I was almost addicted to instantaneous. You know, what? I sniffed pills, not ate them. I chugged Mm -hmm. drinks, not sipped them. So when you smoke you get the effect right away. But with the edibles, it's an hour or two and you don't know when it's an, it'll just settle in. And I like that idea a lot better than before the instantaneous because I want it instant. So, but, and I'll even, I'm going to link up the Facebook group too in the description. So if you do want to just join the Facebook group, it is a closed group. Just answer the questions and 
as long as you're not a shithead, you'll most likely be approved to be in the group. And yeah, that'll that'll be linked below too. That if you want to go into that Facebook group, that we you know you still yeah, actually we approve everybody automatically. Yeah. <laughs> everybody. And if you're shithead, we kick you out later because, you know, it's too difficult to try to screen people in advance. Yeah. Yeah, we don't even have membership questions. So just oh, you uh, don't? Okay. Approve and everybody into the some group. Some do and some don't. So I'm glad you don't. That's even easier for people. Yeah, you got to be a real asshole to get kicked out. <laughs> but some people really do. They work really hard, you know, yeah. to be an asshole when they finally do get And they're real assholes and they deserve <laughs> <laughs> but it takes a it takes a lot of effort. Uh, it takes a takes a big asshole, pun intended. Yeah, this, <laughs> we always warn people first. You know, this is not cool. I mean, our take is, yeah, we believe that you have a choice. You always have a choice. I mean, drinking alcohol or taking a drug is a volitional act. It actually requires a lot of work. You have to earn the money. You have to go to the store. You have to buy the booze or yeah. order it and get it or- delivered. Or it's, you have to find a dealer, and then once yeah. you find a dealer, then you have to work out a time. That's why I would sit – if you had talk to drug addicts, we would sit in parking lots for sometimes four to six hours a day waiting for dealers. You know, So, yeah, it's, it's, it, is, it is a choice in that sense of, like, you're making choices to do these things. I was making a choice to drive two hours, sometimes without even knowing who I was going to see. You know, a lot of the times I wouldn't want to leave unless I had somebody lined up like, oh, good, blah, blah, blah has, you know, my 30s. I can go now and he's ready to see me in two hours. So it worked out perfect. But like half the time I can't get a hold of anybody. I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to drive to Jersey and see who I can find and just figure it out when I get there, because at least mm-hmm. I'll be closer to the drug if it's available then. You know, and these were all choices I was making. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I do get that. I do understand that part mm-hmm. of it. Like I said, I, I, I even wrote, I don't care about your post. I only care that you're only berating the women in the comments. <laughs> so, hey, people. Well, the yeah. whole thing is we don't, we don't demand that people believe it's a choice or not a choice. I mean, our, our ideas are based on, yeah, you have some choices and you can make, you can plan your drinking or you can decide to stop and you have the power to stop. But we're not beating you over the head. You have to believe the choice theory and not believe the disease theory or you're out of here because, no, you can believe what you want. This is harm reduction. We are not forcing our beliefs on you. If you want to believe the disease theory, if you find it helpful, I don't understand why that's helpful to you. But if it is, go ahead and do it. You know, I don't have to understand everything that's in your head to say we want to support you and making better change, better choices and changing for the better. So we want to support everybody. That's the number one thing is to be supportive of people, not to uh, uh, insist on some dogma. Yeah. No. Well, I appreciate the support, and I know thousands of others appreciate the support, Then, So, I mean, you guys are doing a great thing. And, you know, it, just the fact that you want to just support and not care about what you're doing or how much you're doing, you just know that you have support if and when you want it. You know, that's what's important. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, it's not happening everywhere. There isn't support everywhere. Spoiler alert. <laughs> you know, not everybody cares to just support for support's sake and support your choice and your decision. So it is a big deal that you guys do that. I think that's, that's why I wanted you on. That's why I wanted to talk to you more. 
you know, I see you in there. I know that it's like your group, but like I want to talk, talk and get in there and learn more. And I'm so glad I did. Thank you for taking the time. I'm, I know I said talk an hour, but, you know, it is what it is. You know, I always go over. I, there's it's very rare. So I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, okay. It's not easy, but thank you again. I will let you know when it's up. It'll go on my Patreon first um, because I mm-hmm. just put them up there exclusively for people that follow. And then they go mm-hmm. for free mm-hmm. on YouTube and Spotify and Apple on a rolling weekly basis. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just it's like Christmas presents. I don't know how to give them. As soon as I get them for somebody, I'm like, here's your present, you know, and the same when I edit up an episode, I don't want to hold on to it. I want to put it out there. But yeah, at the same yeah. time, I can't do it. To, I can't oversaturate my YouTube page like that or else the other ones won't get views. And mm. same with the Spotify and Apple. So that's why I'm like, all right, they're my weekly ones. And then people that want to pay monthly five bucks, then they can see all the exclusive first looks before they get uploaded. So that's how I do it. Mm. So I appreciate your time, man, I, so much. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll tag you in when I post it about clips and shit like that. Okay, very good. All right, thanks again, man. Have a good day. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.